This podcast is the seventh episode of Nova Writers, The Warm-Up. Nova Writers is a monthly event organized by Spike Island in partnership with Bristol Festival of Ideas. Today, I receive Kim Sherwood for her first novel, Testament, published by River Run in July 2018, winner of the Bass Novel Award and longlisted for the Desmond Elliott Prize 2019. Kim Sherwood, I will have the great pleasure to interview you tonight in front of an audience in the cozy cafe of Spike Island in Bristol, and we will discuss the themes and plot of Testament in great details. But for now, together, we will focus on your writing techniques and processes on the story behind the story of your first published novel, Testament. I'm very happy to have you with me today. Because to you're a great writer and because uh, you're also a very local writer <laughs> since you are based in Bath. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> So Kim Sherwood, you have a master degree in creative writing and you work as a creative writing teacher for more than five years now. Mm -hmm. uh, first at the University of East Anglia, then in the University of Sussex and now closer to us in UWE, so the University of West England. So I can suspect that creative writing has been a big part of your life and my first question will be, when and why did you start to write uh, fiction? Mm. I was one of those very uh, sort of precocious children. I think I said, you know, before I really could say much else that I was going to be a writer. And I was very lucky that nobody in my family laughed at me or said, oh, that's a ridiculous idea or, you know, that's an impossible dream. Or um, I was very fortunate to have a very supportive mum. Um, and to grow up in a very imaginative, creative, playful house where storytelling was sort of the norm. So it was really a dream from childhood and I was always writing and always uh, had, I suppose, I had, a, I had a lecturer once who described it as a compulsive disorder writing. Um, really? And I think, I mean, that might be going too far, but I think I always had that inner compulsion, that inner need to write. And is this compulsion to write, was it to write about yourself or was it to write anything? Um, always fiction. Um, and of course, sometimes that draws on my experiences, um, but it's it's never, you know, strictly um, a memoir or anything like that. Um, with a lot of my fiction, what I'm interested in is kind of getting outside of myself and exploring things that I couldn't possibly experience um, and trying to empathise outwards into the world. Yes, I see. And uh, so you said that literature or storytelling was a big part of your, in your family, mm. a big thing in your family. Um, do you have any relatives who are writers or used to be a writer? Yeah, um, it's a sort of a family of artists and writers and storytellers in, in different ways. Mm. So. And my mum is an arts psychotherapist, and so there was that kind of storytelling going on. Very interesting. Um, and then my, my grandfather was an actor, and my then further back in my family, my great-grandfather um, was a poet and an editor, 
my great 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 uncle was a writer so I was always sort of aware of these family stories kind of from the Victorian age onwards of, of writers and artists rattling about in the family history. And when did you decide, if you ever decided, uh, to take your writing on something serious mm. as in I will write a book and I will publish it? Mm. Um, I think that there's there's almost a gap between that hope and the reality um, because I think I probably started writing what you know what I said was my first novel when I was nine or something um, and again luckily nobody nobody said to be ridiculous um, <laughs> um, and so I always had that um, sense of this is my inner reality of being a writer but then of course to actually um, now have a, a real book in the world that's physical that feels like uh, a bit of amazing luck in a way that my that my dream has transformed into reality and I received a lot of, of writers on this very couch by the way <laughs> and not all of them studied uh, creative writing mm. I was wondering why choosing academic studies to become a writer mm. so that decision almost entirely hinged on a stray remark from my uncle um, who is a novelist uh, when I was very little Um, I said to him, oh, I'm going to be a writer as well. And he said, oh, well, then you should probably go and study creative writing, do an MA. Um, and so I, I just sort of said, oh, okay. And then <laughs> I had that kind of seed planted in me, like, that's what you do. Um, and then I went to study at the uh, University of East Anglia, which, of course, has its creative writing MA. I did my BA and my MA there. And really, for me, it, it was just about this is a way to have space and time to write. Absolutely. Mm. This is so interesting for me to hear this kind of stories because creative writing is not a thing as a university thing mm. in France. Or it, it, hasn't, it hasn't been a thing for, I mean, up until the past five years. That's interesting. So like, nobody ever told me right. what you could do right. <laughs> creative right, right, writing right. Uh, as a study. It was always something like, okay... Uh, okay, you want to be a writer, so maybe you should study first, like mm. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and once you have a degree and a job mm. and a husband mm. and maybe some children, because you know, right. then maybe you will find some time to become a writer. Yes. <laughs> I think so much is about what we're kind of told is possible um, at that stage where our brains are still forming and we'll kind of take on these understandings as truths. Mm. Um, and as I say, I, I feel very fortunate that I was given that kind of permission. Mm -hmm. um, but also, of course, it's certainly not the only way to go about it. And I think if I hadn't gone and done a BA and an MA, I, I still would have gone on to, to be a writer. Because in a way, it's not a, it's not a case of going on to be it. It's just I feel it's it's in me whether I want it or not, if yeah. that makes sense. Absolutely, because I talked, as I told you before, I have writer here who never done any mm. kind of courses or anything linked to creative writing mm. and they wrote wonderful books and they exactly see that, themselves yeah. as writers exactly. so of course there is not one specific path to become yeah. a writer but your path is, is, is very interesting and I'm going to go a bit closer to your mm. process as a writer and I was wondering um, because you told me that your first novel you wrote it when you were nine <laughs> and I was wondering um, how do you start to write a story and how do you know that this uh, first idea that you have is a good idea mm. for a story I mean. mm. 
I think for me, uh, it's about the ideas that linger and grow and take on a life of their own, almost at the back of my mind without me quite paying attention to them. They're still there and they're still um, taking on their own shape. So um, for my first novel, Testament, it began life as a sort of long short story, about 12,000 words. Um, so it had a, a kind of the same opening. The novel opens with uh, Joseph Silk, a, a painter, passing away. Um, and his granddaughter, Eva, sort of being left with the questions of his identity. He is a Holocaust survivor and he's repressed the trauma that he experienced as a child. Um, and the Jewish Museum in Berlin now wants to exhibit a witness testimony that he gave after liberation that tells his story that he really tried to, to silence. And Eva goes to the museum and meets the curator and has to make that decision. In the first short story that I wrote, it ended with her meeting the curator. And, and, oh, and that was really? it. And then I thought I was moving on to something else. Mm. But in the back of my mind, it kind of continued. And I wondered, you know, what happened to his friend Dragon, who he, who he befriends in forced labour service as young man? What will Eva decide? Does she ever see the curator again from the museum? And these questions continued and the story grew and in a way it sort of demanded that I write it. I see. So you know that your story or, or the ideas you have about the story is a good idea because it evolves kind of by itself. Like you can find branches yeah, exactly. and, and paths that you go exactly. could go from the story to a longer mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And a very random question to ask, how, because, as I said before, you, you teach creative writing, so you have a busy professional life. Mm. Uh, you just told me that you have to mark some, <laughs> some, uh, some homeworks at the moment. So mm. how do you find the time and the place for you to write your mm. own writing and maybe to try stuff and give them up? Because mm. not every writing is a good writing. So how do you of find course. the time to, to try and to... It can be a challenge because, as you say, often what you need, or, or what I find I need, is a sort of um, a good stretch of time to be able to get into an idea, walk away from it, come back to it, let it grow, approach it from a new angle. And so what, what I find most helpful for my writing is to have a few days in a row to really be able to keep coming back to it. Um, but of course, if you have another job, which most writers do, um, that can be hard to find, that kind of interrupt uninterrupted space so that's a challenge um i feel fortunate that i've never really had a strict routine as such i don't i know that some writers can be quite particular about you know it's got to be at six o'clock in the morning and i've got to have this cup of coffee and i've got to have you know i've got to have this particular berry in my porridge um but, um, <laughs> that you know mm. um who's been here on this mm. coach uh, told me that he has to wake up at 4 30 in the morning oh my god and i found this <laughs> horrific <laughs> and it kind of you know kills my hope of being a writer because I was like I will never do that <laughs> no me neither my brain doesn't work at 4 30 in the like, morning if I find the strength to wake up I will not have the strength to write <laughs> so that's too much absolutely and I feel like you know for me um writing can happen in any moment that comes along and provides space for it so whether that's on the train during my commute or whether it's you know, late at night because I don't happen to have something the next morning. Um, whatever moment appears, uh, writing can exist in that space.
and do you have do you have a working process like do you mm. plan before a writing session or do you plan ahead for the next six months what do you have to write something like that i keep um i always have a notebook um or, or several notebooks for the project that i'm on and that's where all of my ideas go i do a lot of research for my writing so it's where the research notes are but it's also where ideas for scenes and scraps of dialogue um And I'll also be putting images in there that I found that inspire me. I'll be drawing diagrams of the plot um, or pictures of the room that the characters are in. And I keep that next to me while I'm writing. It's a kind of log. And that way, um, well, I find it helpful as a way to sort of have a dialogue with myself while I'm writing. But then also, if for whatever reason life comes along and I can't write for several weeks or several days, when I return to it, I can open the notebook up and it's like returning to my... The state of my mind in the minute that I stopped writing when I last sat down and I can pick it up again and that helps me almost clear my throat and, <laughs> and get back into the process. <laughs> um, I think there is two schools of writer, the one who the ones who plan before you know who have their whole plot mm. uh, written before they start to to actually write the book and the ones who decide to go with the flow mm. and get to know the characters first and then see what the, where mm. the characters lead them. Mm. Do you think you belong to one other school or maybe you belong to both of I them? I think I'm probably, them? yeah, I think I probably defect between both camps. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. <laughs> I, I get very into drawing big diagrams for the plot, uh, but I'm also very willing to discard them uh, the minute the character wants something else. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so I sort of moved between, you know, so for example, with Testament, um, the curator at the Jewish Museum in Berlin, Felix, he wasn't really supposed to be a proper character throughout the novel. He was just going to be a voice on the end of the phone when Eva arranges to go to the museum. And then she was going to meet him once and talk about the witness testimony that her grandfather left behind. Um, but then when I was writing the scene with her on the phone with him, I kind of liked his voice and I thought he was kind of funny and I liked them together. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll I'll make him, in my mind, originally he was about 50, maybe I'll make him a bit younger, I'll make him about 30, and they can meet and have a sort of longer conversation. And then I liked that, and then I thought, maybe he could follow her to Hungary. And so <laughs> I'm also very prepared to yeah, throw all the planning out and let the idea grow. Yeah, he he likes Eva very much. Mm. And he's a very interesting character in the sense that he witnesses everything. Yeah. And... He's, he's, he's a witness in the sense that he's a historian mm. as a job, mm. but he's also a witness because he can see Eva going through mm. her own past mm. into his story. So he's a very quiet, very mm. German, as I found, <laughs> uh, character. Um, does anyone read your work while you're writing? Does anyone know that you're working on? I tend to be um, quite private with my work. I don't really share my drafts um, until I have a full, complete draft. But I do share my ideas with people uh, very close to me um, and with my agent and my editor. So they know what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly with my close friends and family, I find it useful. It's almost like there's a sort of population of imaginary people that live in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and then if other people know who they are, um, then it means that I can say to them, oh, I'm thinking that Felix might go to Budapest. And they won't say, who? What? <laughs> They'll go, oh, didn't I do it? You know, or, oh, no, that doesn't make sense. Well, Felix, um, yeah. he's been with me for the past four exactly. or three months, yeah. so you know. <laughs> exactly, yeah, I'm really close with him now. 
<laughs> so that's really helpful. But I don't really like to show work in progress because I find um, that when things are still forming, if somebody reads an early draft and says, but, you know, the point of view here doesn't work, I can get a bit um, thrown off and I, and I can wonder whether I need to make a certain decision about it in that moment and maybe I should go back and change it. Or So it's easier for me to have the whole thing and to sort of know what works and what doesn't much more assuredly for myself before I begin to open it up to other people's questions. And because you have uh, writers in your family, as I said before, do you go to them and ask them, ask them some tips, for example, or what what do they think about your idea for a story? I tend not to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I sort of chat with them about ideas. Mm -hmm. um, what I do find really helpful is, I'm very fortunate to have um, sort of family members who are very invested in, in my imaginary worlds um, and friends as well. And I find that helpful just to kind of say to people, here's the story so far, and then I'll tell it out loud. Um, and I can kind of see from their reactions uh, what's exciting, what's puzzling. Um, and I kind of come up with things in that moment as well, because they'll say, you know, um, in my, my second novel, there's kind of a lot of logistical traveling, um, because a lot of it's set at sea. And so they'll say, but, you know, why is the boat stopped at that point? Why not here? And then mm -hmm. in that moment, I'll come up with something. That's and I find that very really useful, useful uh, people to have for people who are very good at, you know, not too imaginative people, but very practical people. And people can who really, out. Yeah. yeah, and people who um, really get character motifs. I find that really, really helpful um, because they're as invested in the character's emotional life as I am. I'm really fortunate to have an editor who... Uh, cares about my characters as much as I do and um, that really helps. I can I can believe that. Um, to be a, a teacher of creative writing, do you feel like it has an impact on your own writing? Mm. Absolutely. I think these things are always existing in dialogue, um, whether it's with um, students or whether it's even just with, say, writers that you look up to. Um, so for me, Uh, so, for example, I've been looking recently into George Eliot's life and I uh, found that she didn't like to share drafts um, in between. Uh, so she always refused to serialise her stories, which was, of course, the big thing at that time. And Charles Dickens tried to persuade her to give him the mill on the floss to publish chapter by chapter in his magazine, which would have been a huge get at the time uh, because she was she was outselling him, actually, at that point. Um, but she really refused. And this was kind of considered odd by those around her um, that, that she didn't like to share till she had everything. Um, but when I read that, because that kind of articulated my process, you know, I found that sense of kinship uh, with another writer. And I think that's what teaching can bring as well, because it provides a sense of community. And what's really moving about teaching, particularly if you're with a group for a long time. So um, I teach a third well their third years now and they're about to graduate but I've been teaching them since their first year so this this one cohort you know we've been together for three years and you see the cohort identity and how they come together and support each other and provide that completely constructive audience for each other and you you know it's amazing a privilege to watch ideas kind of flourish in that space and I find that really inspiring because I think it 
it can be a kind of lonely pursuit writing and that's partly what I like about it because I like my space and I like being alone um, but it's also I think a space where if you really trust those around you it can be important to have that community um, and often I'll be talking to students and they'll say I might change my point of view from third to first for these reasons and they'll be sort of explaining their reasons and then I'll be thinking oh yeah actually I could do that in that chapter oh that makes sense and it sparks off that conversation for me as well uh, so that's that's a huge privilege. Um, so because you are a creative writing teacher, as you said, you are constantly facing young authors uh, from, I guess, all walks mm. of, of life. Um, would you say there is a, what is a, the greatest strength of a young novelist and mm. also on the opposite scale, um, what's the most common weakness <laughs> uh, when you start to uh, learn creative writing or when you start to write fiction? Mm. Well, I think um, with with the writers that I've taught, the ones who I really see um, going on to kind of fulfil their dreams and desires, they have huge talent, um, but they also have great perseverance and determination. And that seems to be a particularly important quality because it allows them to keep going through the amount of drafts it takes to finish something, to, to feel deeply into something because they're utterly committed to it um, and to sit with something for a long time and to let it grow and also to face rejection, which of course is a big part of any writer's life. Absolutely. And of course you need you need luck to get on as a writer. I think that's... that's a, 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 One a, big thing. One big thing <laughs> that's out of our hands. <laughs> um, but what's in our hands is that level of commitment and engagement and determination and when I see that in students, I think, yeah, you could go really, really far with your writing. Mm. Um, I'm thinking uh, because I arrived in the UK maybe like three years ago. Mm. And so I met lots of first novel writers, but like very successful ones mm. because I interviewed them. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not very used to read manuscripts from not published yet mm. uh, writers from, from the UK. And but I know that in France the most common problem or weakness uh, would be to start a book which would be about yourself, mm. where you as a writer, you are as well uh, the main mm. character. Mm. Do you think it's a only a very French thing, or do you <laughs> do you realize it on this uh, with your yeah. uh, students? If it makes any sense? Uh, yeah, totally. I think you do see in students, you know, first year students who've just got to university, um, that a lot of what they enjoy about writing is self-expression, mm. and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's a, that's a big part of writing, and 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 I think can be very powerful and empowering. Uh, but if that's if that's all the writing is doing, um, mm. then sometimes. It can be so kind of interior and inward looking that it's almost closed mm -hmm. and it's not alive as a piece of fiction exactly um, yeah. and so often it's about encouraging students to kind of look out into the world mm -hmm. and think about what their passions are and what um, what grabs their interest what fires them up what worries them what are they afraid of what scares them in the world you know directing that energy outwards as, as well as inwards and allowing your writing therefore to sit in relationship with the world I think that's that's often a lot of you know what we talk about a lot in those early stages. I know I know what you mean. Um, what is like going back to your experience as a writer and not mm. as a creative writing teacher anymore? What is the most difficult thing for you when it comes to writing, and what is the easiest? What is, is it easiest mm. for you, for example, to create characters, mm. or 
to that you do you enjoy because mm. uh, testament is a very historical novel mm. do you enjoy the research process more mm. what is the easiest and what is the most difficult i think probably what's most difficult is word counts they're mm -hmm. just the bane of my life <laughs> i can't stick within them <laughs> things just grow and grow Okay. And then I so spend you tend to a long time editing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I've come, I sort of come to accept that and think I, my writing is a bit like a tree growing and I've just got to let it grow and then I'll prune it at the end. Um, but I don't know what its shape should look like yet, so it just needs permission to grow. There is also this metaphor in Testament about tidal. Mm. And so maybe it's also your way of, you know, Give a lot of word counts, like yes. a lot of word, and then getting back into something yeah, more yeah. minimalist and powerful. Exactly mm -hmm. that. And I've had to sort of wrestle with that and then let it go and just let that be my way of writing. Mm -hmm. um, I say wrestle, I think I, I came to wrestle with it because of the kind of institutional creativity that I've engaged in, in studying creative writing and then teaching creative writing, where, of course, word counts are given to you all the time. Um, so I then was having to sort of work out how to strap myself down almost. And on the one hand, that's helpful because you work out, okay, well, it can only be 2,000 words, so that's an interesting shape, that's an interesting form. How shall I approach that? And on the other hand, it can lead to, I think, a sort of, in my case anyway, unhelpful contortion um, where I stopped giving myself permission just to go. And... In, in recent years, I've tried to just embrace that and say, just go for it, because that's what I find easiest. The thing I find easiest in writing is is almost that trance-like state of just getting into it, um, where I forget the time and I forget, you know, to eat sometimes. Um, and I forget, which is a big thing. Which is a big thing. <laughs> um, and I forget, um, you know, what might be happening that evening or what somebody needs me to reply to or what's happening tomorrow what train am I getting all of those things that can pile up until it feels like there's no space to breathe almost in regular life mm -hmm. it all just falls away and deadlines are gone and work is gone and pressures are gone and I'm just in my characters worlds and I'm in the language and and that's what I perhaps most love about writing I feel entirely myself that sounds very good. I, I have to admit I have a lot of problems to forget about the deadlines or mm, forget about mm, exactly the that. everyday life scores, I would say. Yes. To yes. merge into the, the, the story and the, the writing. Mm. Um, so this is, as you said, it's not your first novel, <laughs> but this is your first published novel. Mm -hmm. um, how many did you write before coming up with something mm. serious that mm. you thought would be good enough for publishing? So... It's almost a sort of question of um, uh, how long how long things lived for, I suppose. How long ideas live for in my mind. So I wrote, you know, novels as a as a child and teenager. Um, I remember the first one, the first one that I wrote, um, which was sort of very Harry Potter meets Buffy, uh, because that was what was going on in my very life cool. at the time. <laughs> um, I remember writing it on a really, you know, one of the sort of first computers. Um, it was so slow. Um, you know, it was before we even had the internet. And I, it broke, the computer broke, and it had like an electrical storm that fired the floppy disk that I was saving it to, the days of floppy disks, 
um, and it was all gone, and I'd written like a hundred thousand words. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> it was this all gone. horrific. Um, and uh, there was no recovering it, so I started oh, no. again. No. <laughs> yeah, I started again on okay. you know page one, word one. Um, oh. So, so in a way, it's a question of you, you have know, to how face many... this at a very young age. <laughs> <laughs> it's very traumatic. <laughs> was, you know, did you ever read Calvin and Hobbes? It was probably character building, um, <laughs> but it was you know. That story lived with me for a while, and then um, it kind of fell away as I grew up. Mm-hmm. And then what would have been my first novel, and is now going to be my second novel, came to me, the one that has lots of sailing in it. Um, it's the, the core of the novel is a kind of smuggling tale, or a subversion of the smuggling tale. Um, and I started writing that when I was in my second year of university, and went on to the MA with that but found that it didn't, the novel didn't really thrive under those institutional constrictions that I was describing. And I realised after a while that I, it wasn't breathing anymore as an idea. It, it had, it had completely contracted. Mm-hmm. And that was when I moved on to Testament. And I didn't know whether that first novel would ever sort of breathe again, whether it would come back to life again. Uh, but it now has and will be my second novel uh, because it never it never fully left it remained in the back of my mind i will uh, try not to ask question about this <laughs> second novel <laughs> uh, did you how was it to try to publish a testament did mm. you struggle to find an agent or did you get recommendation by someone was it a good question of luck or something like that well i was i was very fortunate so i um i spent about six years writing the novel and then finished it and sent it out to agents um, and I was getting uh, some sort of positive rejections if that makes sense yes absolutely. Was quite clicking. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm know, very so, familiar to them yeah 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 so you know really lovely feedback from yeah. people but nothing was quite clicking okay and I wasn't really sure where it was going and I was I think at that point for various life reasons at sort of a kind of low confidence in myself of course mm. um, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen with the book, really. And then my partner, who's a writer, Nicholas Herman, he encouraged me to enter the Bath Novel Award, and he kept encouraging me. He'd been it was it's open for you know a few months, and he kept saying, "Why don't you enter? I have a good feeling about it." And I kept saying, "Oh no, I don't I don't really think I will." Mm-hmm. And I was working four jobs at the time, so I was very tired. Mm-hmm. Um, I was living in Bath, but teaching at the University of Sussex, so I was commuting to Brighton every week on top of three other jobs. Oh, I see. Uh, so I was, you know, I was quite frayed at the edges. Um, and the the night of the deadline of the Bath Novel Award, I got back from from Brighton. I arrived quite late. I think it was. I think the deadline was midnight. And it was, it was, you know, quarter two or something. And my partner said, well, well, why don't you want to enter? And I said, because I don't think I'll get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if that's the only reason, then I think you should do it. And very nicely walked me towards my computer and we got the file up and we did the form and we pressed submit at about two minutes to midnight. Um, and then I, I was long-listed um, and then I was short-listed um, which which still feels just so amazing and then um, there was a really funny I don't think my my agent would mind me saying this I was I was writing uh, one day but not feeling very confident um, and feeling really like I, I, I 
needed something um, from the universe and I, I hadn't heard yet about the shortlist. I knew I'd been longlisted, but I sort of thought, well, that'll be that. I won't get onto the shortlist um, because being very best supposed to think at the time. Um, and I remember I was writing and I looked up at the sky and said, I just need a sign. And no, then I I'm went... starting to be very scared right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of weird. I went onto Twitter, which usually is the like last place to look for positive signs. Uh, but went onto Twitter and I saw that the agent who was judging the competition, Sue Armstrong, she had tweeted that she was reading the shortlist and so far so very, very good. And there was a picture of a manuscript on her lap. And I zoomed into the picture thinking, maybe? And I zoomed <laughs> in and it was my first page and I was on the shortlist. Oh my god. Um, and it was just such an incredible feeling. Yeah, that's a good um, sign. That's yeah. a good sign <laughs> from the universe. Thank you, universe. <laughs> um, and then I was incredibly fortunate to win. Um, mm. And went on to meet Sue, my agent. And, you know, people often say about meeting agents, oh, go with your gut reaction when, when you meet the person. If you, if you feel in your gut that you trust them and that they get you, go for them. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I'm not very good at gut reactions. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a Libra. I'm very much on the one hand and on the second hand and on the third hand. And I can deliberate for a long, long time. <laughs> um, but when I went to meet Sue... Uh, we were just chatting in her office and within a couple of minutes I thought, yeah, it's you. You you get me and I feel safe with you. It's you. Mm. Uh, but then she obviously had like a thing prepared to kind of pitch to me. So I thought I should wait and let her, you know, say everything get she's prepared. Yeah. Uh, so I was waiting. And then after after a while, um, she said, so how does all that sound? And I thought, okay, maybe now's the, the time. Can I? And I said, well, can I just say yes? <laughs> um, and she said, you don't have to. I said, no, no, I've been like waiting to. Can I, can I say yes? <laughs> Uh, and yeah, that was how that was how we signed with uh, Sue at Convalent Walsh, um, and she's just been so amazing. Uh, it's beautiful uh, the story you told about how your partner helped you to mm. uh, take the courage to apply for the Best Novel Award. Um, it's so important to have Absolutely. someone that you trust that also trusts in you yes. uh, when you are a writer, and because when you are a writer, I mean, I'm sure you you you, you told me that before. And I can relate to the fact that there are many moments when mm. uh, there is such a lack of confidence. Yes, yeah, um, absolutely. So I can only encourage people who do not write to support people who write. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and your partner is a writer as well, he so is, he yeah. knows so this I'm, kind yeah. of up and down moment. Um, my last question will be because you mentioned the fact that you have a seven novel on the go. Mm. I'm not going to ask any question about that, <laughs> not directly. But uh, what did you learn from the making of Testament, your mm. your first novel, uh, that would be useful for the second novel? Mm. Or what mistakes did you do that you won't do again, mm. uh, maybe in the second novel? Mm. It's been a really incredible experience and a huge learning experience having the book out. I didn't know at all what to expect. Um, you know, everything from I didn't realize how much publicity and marketing and, um, you know, the incredible work that the publishers do that goes into it. Um, I've been really lucky to do a lot of events and I didn't really anticipate that. Do you enjoy um, those events? I really you don't do. have to say yes to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do because for me, a lot of writing is about as I said, being in relationship. And so, I, uh, for example, I did an event recently at uh, Stratford-upon-Avon Literary Festival, and uh, it, it just so happened that there were a lot of survivors and children of survivors in the audience. And we shared stories and, um, and talked about 
very deeply personal things. And that felt, you know, that there, there, was a, there was a woman in the audience who was maybe in her 90s. And I noticed that during the event, she was quite tearful. And then in the book signing queue afterwards, she came up uh, and told me that her father was a, a, a Russian Jewish refugee um, who had come to Britain um, in the 30s. Uh, but refused to ever put his date of birth or real name on his identification papers because he was worried that he that the, that the Russians would follow him, essentially, um, that the pogroms would follow him and he'd be made to go back. And she she cried as she was telling me this and, and I just held her hand and, and we talked about it. And I, I feel hugely honoured in those moments to be able to... I hear people's stories and also to be able to share some of my family history that went into the book uh, uh, and particularly with children and grandchildren of survivors to be able to share what that experience is like and I didn't I didn't realize that any of that would happen um so so that's something that you know that I'll, that I'll know um going into the second book in terms of the writing I think what's What's come out of the first book is almost um, a permission to be braver. Um, I mean, there was a lot that I, there was a lot that I tackled in Testament that I found very hard. Um, mm. It's involved a lot of very, um, what's the best way to put it? I suppose research that took things from me. Um, I spent a lot of time in archives looking at witness documents. I went to a lot of the sites that I was writing about and it really kind of almost seeped into me, seeped into my dreams, it seeped into myself and and I tried to face it as much as I could. And now with the second book, there are things I'm aware um, that, that, you know, almost just for reasons of plot and character didn't come up in the first book. That I now want to turn and face in the second one, um, particularly um, my main character or one of my main characters is a is a young woman uh, who is sort of grows up as a boy and then becomes a girl while also being a boy. It, it it's tangled, but um, that's something that I want to. I suppose it could be scary. Uh, it can feel exposing. Mm-hmm. Um, really going in for something and saying, okay, no holds barred, no shame, completely raw, completely open, write it. But that's what I want to keep trying to do. Whenever I I feel that I'm not brave enough for mm. a topic, I turn to Elena Ferrante mm. um, because uh, there is this one book, uh, I just forgot the name of it, right? Uh, the Days of Abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um, what she writes in this book is so raw mm. that, and it's so enjoyable to read. I, I'm, I'm, I suspect it might have been very, very hard to write mm. because she pictures a woman in her uh, m- most horrendous weakness. Mm. Uh, but it's so enjoyable to read as a reader because every reader about it says no. Sadistic, as you said, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they like to see the character suffering, you know. Yeah. And uh, whenever I'm not feeling brave enough as a writer, I turn to this book mm. because I see how much sense it makes as a reader to read this kind of stuff and how 
empowering emperor mm. you can be to realize that people can share so much mm, so I, I i rely very much with, with what you say but yeah as a writer it can be very draining and mm. very scary most mm. that's more scary than, than draining mm. it's just a matter of trying to face it yes i'm afraid we reached the I'm afraid we reached the end of this interview. <laughs> so thank you very much thank you so for, much. for your time and, and honesty, uh, Kim Sherwood. We are now heading to, heading to Spike Island Cafe, where you will read some extracts of your first published novel, Testament, and discuss it with me and the audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. talking to our dear listeners if you like this podcast please let us know by subscribing sharing and liking you can find us on all the podcast platforms under the name nova writers the warm-up and we will be happy to have your opinion on the twitter page of spike island or on my page at fuster julie the next writer to be interviewed will be caroline hukes for Orchid and the Wasp and this will be on the 11th of July. So if you have some technical questions about creative writing to, to ask her, please share them on Twitter and I will make sure to pass them on to her. <laughs>